to 6 today, I've got to tell you, this is one of the most difficult passages in the entire book of Genesis to, to interpret. Uh, I, it was a nightmare looking at commentaries this week, I've got to tell you. Uh, man, it's, it's not one of those, this is not one of those passages you want to look at commentaries first, because, man, I had all kinds of interpretations. They were all over the place. And this is even from conservative commentators. But what we're going to look at here is a very strange episode that on the surface, some people would call, well, th- this is uh, mythical or it's a uh, legend. In fact, uh, there was a guy named Mr. Spicer. He called this an undisguised mythology, Genesis 6, first part. Uh, Mr. Julius Wellhausen, when he commented on this, he said it's the, the story's a cracked, erratic boulder. It's hard, hard to break. <laughs> However, uh, I hope as you look at this, and, and you hope you, hopefully you agree with me, that this is not a myth, this is not a saga, this is not a fantasy. It's, in fact, th- this, this fits into the story of redemption quite well. If you can get that big picture of the Bible and the story of redemption, hopefully that will help you. As you're walking amongst the trees and the forest, uh, don't, don't, lose, don't lose sight of the big picture here. It's, so what's going on here is this, this passage we're going to look at and read in a moment is, is, uh, is unfolding the nature of God's redemptive plan of history. Remember back in Genesis 3.15, uh, we, we read... What God said to Satan, Genesis 3.15, that uh, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Key verse for the entire Bible, in fact. But in that verse, notice God prophesied against Satan that his doom would come from the seed of a woman, from, from a woman's offspring. So, if Satan could prevent the arrival of this offspring, of this seed, then his career would be eternally safe, would it not? However, Satan had no clue about which woman would bear this seed. He's not all-knowing as God is, so he doesn't know everything God knows. And it's interesting, after Genesis 3, Satan's name is not mentioned in the book of Genesis. However, having said that, he and, of course, his demons are alive and, and well, and they're, they're at work doing their best to keep the promised Messiah from being born. Uh, we saw, Of course, we saw earlier that uh, he's already tried that. He's going to do that again, and he's going to keep trying to do that. But if you think of it from Satan's perspective, who really wants their head crushed by the Savior? <laughs> Satan's no, well, he is a fool in many ways, but he, at least he's got enough sense. Hey, I don't want my head crushed by the Savior. And so he's going to try everything he can to do to stop the Messiah from being born. And so God had declared war on Satan, and Satan intended to fight back. How's he doing that? Well, Satan, we, we already saw back in chapter 4, Satan uh, tempted Cain to kill Abel. If the seed of the woman is going to eventually bring forth the Messiah, the coming Savior, well, why don't we just kill off the offspring from Adam and Eve? And a very effective plan, but it didn't work, did it? Because we read 
there in Genesis that Adam and Eve gave birth to another son, and his name was Seth. And from Seth, we've, we can see in Genesis 5, right, in that genealogy, from Seth eventually goes all the way down to Noah. So the offspring of the woman continued on. That's one of the benefits of having a genealogy. We can see the story of redemption being fulfilled before our very eyes. And we need to remember that Satan is never going to give up. You corner an animal, they, they can become quite nasty. And this is kind of what's going on here. And So let's see what Satan is up to now from Genesis chapter 6. As we read from the Word of God, look what uh, God has to say in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord, that is Yahweh, said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord, Yahweh, said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. So I propose to you today, there's a lot of grace we can see in the midst of judgment here. So here's the proposition that by His grace, God wants you to escape His judgment. Judgment is coming. And it is a deserved judgment. But as usual, when you look for, uh, when you see God's judgment, look for His grace. I thought of a main idea from the text, which is not on the screen, but it goes something like this: that the wickedness of mankind, we, we just read, it brings pain to God and judgment to the world. But there's this judgment can be escaped. How can you escape judgment? How do you escape God's judgment? Well, it's only by grace, God's grace, God's unmerited favor, giving you what you do not deserve. One of the points of this passage, don't lose sight of the big picture here as well, is, is this. It's showing us why judgment is coming. Why is a worldwide flood about to happen here? Why did God judge the world? Number one, we see man was deteriorating. Uh, there, there is some who think that mankind is getting better and better and better and better. Oh, no. <laughs> Genesis is showing us, no, Adam was perfect. He was the, the apex, the climax of God's creation. And since then, we've just been getting worse and worse. So those first four verses are recording the deterioration of human culture. What are we going to see? Three things, three points we see here. Number one, uh, marriage was demonized. We see life is shortened, and we see 
violence is idolized. Number one, first point we see here is that marriage was demonized. Now, I'm kind of giving away my, my cards. I'm letting you look at my cards and my deck, so to speak, as, uh, as I'm interpreting this here. But this, notice the story opens with what may be the most debated text in the book of Genesis. Uh, there are some who think these verses, and godly men and women who think these verses are, as they talk about the sons of God, the sons of Elohim is what that is. Uh, these are the godly Sethite line coming from uh, Adam and Eve's son Seth, who end up marrying these daughters of man. They see they're beautiful. And you say, well, this is, uh, who is this? Well, some would say, well, this is the ungodly Canite woman. That's one interpretation. But remember, Scripture interprets Scripture, a very key rule of hermeneutics. Use Scripture as its own commentary to interpret Scripture. And I find that, uh, in fact, the New Testament talks about this more than the Old Testament. New Testament actually links fallen angels or demons with the time of the flood period here. For example put these scriptures on the screen for you here, but in 1 Peter, it actually alludes to Jesus Christ preaching upon his death. Here's what it says in chapter 3, verse 19. It says, upon his death, he preaches to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, let me just uh, read through these Peter and Jude passages here, and by the time we're done, you'll hopefully understand what this passage is talking about. The word spirits there, 1 Peter 3, is used in the Bible only to describe supernatural beings, uh, which in this context here would be these fallen angels or demons in Genesis 6. By the way, in 2 Peter, 2 Peter references the same fallen angels or demons in the context of the flood as well. So Peter's warning that God will hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. Look what Peter says in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. What's Peter doing here? Well, in 2 Peter, he's referring to this particular group of sinning angels. What's their sin, you might ask? Well, their sin was something that was very grievous to God. And as a result, they were no longer free to roam around at will. They were put in prison. In fact, it says they were cast into hell. Or as the Greek says, Tartarus. If you know anything about Greek mythology, they did believe in Tartarus, which they, of course, got from the Bible. So Tartarus was that that place reserved in the, the place of the dead. Well, that was the, that was the worst. 
But Peter indicates here this gross angelic sin occurred just before the flood period. And then he makes this connection with the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I skipped those verses. You can read that in your Bible. But what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? It was, it was a sensual sin. Homosexuality was part of that. And so he said it was sensual. So Peter provides the very timing of the event and what happened to those demons. They were cast into this prison, into Tartarus, reserved for the day of judgment. But Jude has a companion passage, and Jude explains more about what this sin entailed. So look at Jude, verse 6. It says, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he that God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So what happened here? What, what, what do we learn about their sin? Well, notice it says the demons didn't stay where they belonged. In other words, they didn't stay in the demonic realm. Instead, what did they do? They left this proper dwelling, which, by the way, is consistent with entering into the realm of humanity here, and they did it by intermarriage with women. And, of course, for those crimes, what happens to them? Well, the demons are chained in darkness, in Tartarus, until Judgment Day. Let's not miss the point here. What is the point? Well, those cross-references of Peter and Jude help us to understand, number one, who the sons of God are. Right? I I personally don't believe that... Uh, these are from the Sethite line, coming from Seth himself. Uh, but I believe they're demons. But there's more here to understand, uh, to help us to understand, that the normal meaning even of the phrase sons of Elohim, or God, is angels. That's how it's normally used. For example, another one of the, old, the oldest probably book in your Bible is Job. I want you to see how Job, the book of Job uses the phrase sons of God. Clearly, Satan is mentioned here, as well as demons. And it says in Job 1.6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. I've underlined sons of God there for you. So who are the sons of God? Well, somebody associated with Satan, right? They're associated with Satan. So it sounds a lot like the demons, those fallen angels coming with Satan. Job 2, verse 1 says the same thing. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them to present himself before Yahweh. So again, it says the same thing. And this is, this is how that phrase, sons of God, is used in Scripture, referring to these fallen angels, these demons. So therefore, understanding here, the sons of God phrase are angels, and also understanding that angels, by the way, uh, are described as sexless, sexless beings. What we must have here is these fallen angels or demons possessing the souls of these men. We have what I believe is demon possession going on here. 
and these demonized men then marrying the daughters of other men who are living at this time period. So it is these same demons whom Peter and Jude, by the way, reference as having been in prison at the time of the flood and is now being kept in dungeons for ultimate judgment. But think about this. The human culture at this time is deteriorating. This is the point that the passage is showing us. It's not getting better and better. It's getting worse and worse. And we're going to see in our next passage in Genesis, it gets so bad that God sends a worldwide flood. So just how low culture had gotten is evidenced by the apparent parental complicity in this marriage between these demon-possessed men and the daughters. There's no hint, by the way, that these were anything but proper marriages. Uh, if you know anything about the ancient culture, the ancient world at this time, uh, it, was, it was quite normal when you ladies, uh, if you got married, it was your parents who, who typically arranged the, the wedding and the marriage for you. You had to have approval from your parents. Uh, there was no, no, wasn't supposed to be any marriages apart from parental approval. Therefore, uh, I think it's important for us to understand the girls' fathers are encouraging these unions here, it appears. Just as pagan fathers push their daughters sometimes into those fertility cults. That appears what's going on here. So Genesis 6 gives us nothing less than the demonization of marriage and culture itself. God's sacred institution of marriage is being demonized, deteriorating. What we see here is a takeover of culture by Satan and his host. Evil has multiplied faster than the population, and so it's spread throughout the earth. But more important than the details of this episode, please understand this, my friends, is that man is beyond self-help beyond self-help. Demonic powers are in the driver's seat here. That's how bad this is. That's why there needs to be God's judgment. Well, how do we see uh, mankind deteriorate? Well, it's interesting. We see life is shortened. Life is shortened. These demonized marital unions that were actually intended to secure eternal life for humanity didn't accomplish that. As usual, Satan overpromises and underdelivers, and God drastically reduced man's lifespan here from, well, the oldest was Methuselah, what, 969 years old? Adam lived to about 930, and now it's just a little over 100 years. Notice verse 3 talks about God talking about shortening the days to 120. Rarely do you see anybody live past 120. Lucky to live to that. That's part of God's consequences for sin. So man was sentenced to live a maximum of 120 years. That's roughly reducing it by sevenfold. It's interesting. uh, Some look at this and say, well, that's a little bit problematic in the wider setting of Genesis, because of course Noah and, and uh, many of his descendants lived many hundreds of years. But if you, if you look at uh, the genealogies here, 
in your Bible, you'll see after the flood, after the flood, lifespans dramatically start dropping off. The Bible says Abraham lived 175, Isaac 180, Jacob was 147 years. However, it was simply, uh, it may be simply 120 years is, is, is that lifespan that was gradually implemented. In the post-flood uh, period, the recorded ages, of course, steadily declined. You look at the other genealogies in Genesis 11, you can see this happening. Uh, later figures rarely exceeded 120. Uh, the ones in your Bible you can read about is uh, Jacob uh, uh, and Joseph, for example. Joseph lived to 110, Moses 120, Joshua 110. Moses' brother Aaron, he's the, the, one of the exemptions, lived to be 123. So we don't see the lifespans generally going past 120. So much then for man's attempt to become the, some superhuman race. So he not only fell short of immortality, in fact, we see mortality actually itself shrank. Right? Remember Genesis 5 is... Like walking through that cemetery, it says, He died, He died, He died, He died. Not only are they dying, they're not even living as long now. <laughs> so life was shortened. And number three, violence was idolized. Violence is idolized. The, 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 the culture is just violent, as God says. In verse 4, talks about the Nephilim. Your new KJV might have the word giant there. Uh, by the way, if you want to read someone's opinion on why they aren't giants, Jonathan Sephardi's uh, commentary, you might find this interesting, some of you. Jonathan Sephardi's commentary talks about why they can't be giants, if you're interested in that. But uh, ESV calls them Nephilim, and it says they were on the earth in those days. The days when the sons of God were marrying the daughters of men. Who are these? Nephilim. Well, the word Nephilim is from the root word that means to fall. It literally means the fallen ones, or those who fall upon other people. Literally what it means. So it's, it's indicating, that it's, again, violent people during times of violence. It indicates they were strong men who were able to fall on others and able to overpower them. That's, by the way, it's also an indication of our time period we live in. These are violent times. Though I would not go as, as, as far as to say that our Western culture is demonized. Uh, I'm not saying everybody is demon-possessed. Certainly demons are alive and at work. I will say, though, there are signs that are growing. Certainly a demonization of sexual relations has taken place. The idolatry of man's pleasure is, is abundant. But just think about this, though. How can you think otherwise when just watch TV and the daytime talk shows are a mess? They address all kinds of sad subjects, violence being one of them. How can you think otherwise when God's holy name is blasphemed and abused and taken in vain 
while things that are sacred and things that are supposed to be holy, like Jesus, <laughs> what Jesus, who He is, what He's done, for example, those end up becoming the, the brunt of people's jokes. How can you suppose otherwise when so many of our heroes in our culture are violent people? If you, if you look on the internet and just do an interesting search on people uh, who are supposed to be idolized, people who, who are looked up to, it's, oh, I, I did that last night. It was a sad list, disgusting list. Many of them violent, ungodly people. Demonized men and women, by the way, are at the controls of a lot of evil and violence in our culture. We shouldn't be surprised by this, because the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But what, what are we fighting against there? Verse 12, he says, but against those rulers, against those authorities, against those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 12. That's what the Bible says. So we should expect this. But what does God think about mankind? Well, he gives you his thoughts here in this passage, and we see, number two, that mankind was very wicked. So God's assessment of mankind and, and the culture at this time is it's very wicked. Look at verse 5. He says, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. By the way, do you think anything's changed since then? No. <laughs> so what does God think of all this? Well, the Genesis account here tells us in very dramatic terms what God thinks. Very, very wicked culture. Now, it's hard to conceive of a more emphatic statement here of the wickedness of the human heart. See, there is, you don't get any uh, spark of divinity out of this passage, do you? Like some people would say. I mean, notice the words that God uses here. Words like every, only, continually. Uh, that leaves nothing out. Uh, the term every intention here is literally the idea every forming even the forming of what's happening in the heart is evil. Uh, by the way, that it comes from a metaphorical sense of the verb that, that uh, uses to describe a potter in the act of forming and molding a vessel out of clay. That's the idea of this. Uh, our hearts are like that potter forming the clay. Is what, what is the intention, the forming of your heart? Well, it's not a good picture here. It means even the reflections of our fantasies, the, the rising and the freely formed movements of our will are only evil continually. Oh. Again, not a good picture. Their, their depravity here was not a temporary state, by the way. You get the idea that here's, there, there's no relentings, there's no repentance, there's no hesitations. Lust was their medium. Violence is their method. And this is a good picture of total depravity. The relentless depravity of the human brace, by the way, is what sets God's judgment 
on its inevitable course. Why does the flood come? This is why. This is why the flood came. God's judgment is going to fall. And so we see, third, God will judge mankind because mankind is very wicked. God's judgment is coming. Why? Well, it's interesting in verse 6, we see that God's heart was filled with pain. He looks across humanity here and he sees only evil and wickedness for the most part. Verse 6, we see God's pain because it says, The Lord regretted he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Moses first here gives us a peek at God's heart in verse 6. And we must not imagine that God was somehow surprised or somehow God is taken unaware of this. God is never surprised by anything. He is all-knowing. He is omniscient. So what's going on here? Well, though God's eternal joy and His happiness cannot be disturbed, He is not a disinterested observer of this human scene here. He knows what's going on, and He is interested. Now, one of the marks of personality is feeling. This is one way you know God is a person. God has feelings. And here in Genesis, we read that God's heart is filled with pain. The word here expresses the most intense form of emotion. It's an intense emotion. God is in pain emotionally. A second question we can answer here is how? How is God going to judge the world? Well, God's plan was to destroy the entire world, and He's going to do it because of the pervasive wickedness of the human race. Verse 7 says that, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Not only man, but notice man and animals and the creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. You remember what God said after he created man? He looks at his creation, he says, oh, this is very good. He loved what he had made. Now he's looking at all this wickedness and this evil, and he's saying, oh, disgusting. It makes me sick. God responds here by saying, I'm going to blot him out. His judgment, by the way, would involve a complete erasure of man, except for eight people. We're going to read about that later on here in chapter 6 and 7. God saves eight people alive, Noah and his family. So the destruction of everything from man to animals had to do with man's given sovereignty over the earth. For the the irrational creatures were created for God, and therefore they're involved in the fall. There'd be no half measures, by the way, when God deals with sin. No half measures. No half-heartedness going on here. God's terrible resolution was grounded in the promise that He had made to the seed of the woman that that, uh, that, uh, that, that the serpent's head would be crushed. So the race was thoroughly demonized, thoroughly wicked, thoroughly violent, incapable of delivering that kind of seed, and thus it was only right for God to take this humanity and destroy it. Start over. 
However, you've heard it said, when you see God's judgment, look for His grace. When you see God's judgment, look for His grace. And the word but is one of the best words in all of the Bible. It shows a contrast. (laughs) Because you come to verse 8, and it says but. We see all this bad stuff, all this wickedness and evil and violence and so forth demonization and so forth. But there is one, like Enoch, who did walk with God. He walked with God. Because if you, if you look at the, the next verses, uh, verse, the end of verse 9, it says, Noah walked with God. He walked with God. And as a result, verse 8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. So why did God save Noah? Oh, it's, it's because he's so much better than everyone else, right? No. <laughs> no, if that's your answer, you're wrong. Uh, whatever answer you put in there, other than God's grace, is wrong. God is gracious here to Noah. God gave his unmerited favor to someone who didn't deserve it. Noah didn't deserve it any more than anybody else who was wiped off the face of the earth. Do you know what favor actually means here in this verse? It, it, it means grace. It means undeserved favor or merit. That word found is an interesting word in, your, in your, your text there. It shows that God's grace really is unmerited favor. See, Noah didn't earn it. He simply found it in God, in Yahweh. And as a result, Noah had had responded to the grace of God. God enabled him to believe and to obey. And the scriptures say of Noah in in verse 9 there, again, notice it says, he walked with God. Again, what does that mean? Just like Enoch, he walked in this deep intimacy with God. He obeyed God. Noah knew God. He fellowshiped with God. However, we, we need to be reminded Noah's no different from you and me. Noah's a sinner in need of God's grace. He wasn't saved by his righteousness. He's saved by God's grace. Left to himself? Well, he would have perished just like the rest. And so Noah shows up, just as Enoch does, he shows up in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Look what it says in verse 7. By faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed a ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So, what happened with Noah? Why did he walk with God? Because he was a man of faith. And faith, by the way, is not just some airy-fairy thing out there that's hard to understand. It was a reasonable faith in a God who is, and he understood this God because, remember, previous verse says, without faith it's impossible to please God. And so Noah puts his faith in God. He puts his trust and his belief in this God who, who makes promises and keeps these promises. And so why else would he? do the crazy thing and go and build an ark? Why would he be a preacher of righteousness? 
even though no one else other than his family came on the ark and lived. He obeyed God because he understood who God is. And so this side of the flood, we don't have to fear a universal deluge or a flood. Nevertheless, we must fear a more lethal flood. See, this, the picture of Noah and the flood is, is a, a picture of what happens to all people spiritually. See, the more lethal flood is being forever drowned beneath the cold waves of our own sin. We, we deserve that. See, our only hope is in God's great grace. And I love the way Julia Johnston puts it in her hymn, in our hymn book. She says, Sin and despair like the sea waves cold Threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold. Points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Noah put his faith in God who saves. His only hope was God's grace. Today our world rightly sits under the judgment of God. We deserve to be wiped out. We all deserve to go to hell. That's what we deserve. Perhaps it's not thoroughly demonized, but the signs are there. We see Satan's influence, certainly. We see a world that is following its own corrupt desires. I mean, who who can just doubt this as you look around at at popular culture today? How can you doubt that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth and that and the world is messed up, and corrupted? Who can doubt it when we see so many of our heroes are, are often people of wickedness and violence and evil? We, despite the flood and the cross of Christ, are profoundly sinful people. And, and, and Romans 3 shows us we are profoundly sinful in at least three ways. We're sinful in soul, Word, as well as our actions, our deeds. Romans three ten through 12 says this. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. By the way, uh, Romans three ten all the way to verse 17 are quotes from the Old Testament. So you look at your Bible there in Romans 3. If they look different, they're indented usually. That's showing you quotations from your Old Testament. So here's what it says in verse 10. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So the point that Paul's making there is we're all sinners. The entire world stands before God as guilty. The holy God looks at us and says, Mankind is guilty in our very soul because there is none that is like my son, Jesus Christ. None righteous. We're also guilty in our words. Verse 13 of Romans 3 says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That is not a good picture of mankind. Your very words, what comes out of your mouth shows what's in your heart. Because Jesus says it's out of the abundance of your heart your mouth speaks. 
So when somebody, <laughs> I hear this all the time, somebody uh, takes the Lord's name in vain or swears around me, oh, sorry, oh, the man of the cloth, sorry, man of the cloth, uh, didn't mean that. Sometimes I respond, really? Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. That says something about your heart, what's inside you. Well, we're also guilty in our deeds, what we do, because verse 15 says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, in the way of peace they have not known. <laughs> wow. Not a good picture of mankind, is it? No. It shows our corruption, shows who we are. And if we're left to ourselves, it's just God's judgment. But praise God, we are not alone here. We, are, we have a God who is very gracious. And so, by the way, if you're, if you're looking at this text today and you're saying, wow, I'm, I'm really struggling to understand the relevance for me today. Uh, is this relevant story for, for you know, 2018? Well, my friends, I got good news for you. If that's the way you feel, Jesus thought this was relevant for you. Because Jesus actually quotes this or talks about it. In Matthew chapter 24, here's what Jesus says. Listen to this. Verse 37, he says, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Son of Man was a title for Jesus Christ. So he's talking about himself, referencing the days of Noah. And here's what Jesus says. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the son of man does that describe our day yeah <laughs> how many people do you talk to you, you you try to be like Noah the preacher of righteousness you evangelize you witness you, you tell them about Jesus you tell them that Judgment Day is coming. Are you ready, my friend? Are you ready for Judgment Day? And they're like the people of Noah's day. Oh, Judgment Day. Come on. Right. I'm, uh, no worries, mate. Yeah, right? I'm not worried about that. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. Yep. Kind of this nonchalant, apathetic, careless, carefree kind of an attitude. They can't see the judgment day coming. They can't see their sin. They don't see a holy God. Therefore, they just don't care. Jesus coming? How many people actually think about that? Most wouldn't, would they? Because Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Few there be that find it. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Few, few enter in. Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 6. But here in Matthew 24, he's telling us, this is the way it's going to be before my coming. So my exhortation for you, my friend, is be ready. Be ready. Don't be like those people in the days of Noah. Don't close your eyes to the truth. Don't close your eyes to reality and ignore that judgment day is coming. Be ready. Jesus is coming. And this is relevant. So are you ready, my friends? My friend, our only hope is in the marvelous grace of God. 
your only hope is the same hope for, that Noah had. Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 talks about God's grace, and it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, my friend, if you're putting your faith, your belief, your trust in anything other than salvation through faith, by grace in Christ alone, then you have no hope for the coming day of judgment. And Titus 3.5 reminds us of this as well. It says, He saved us. That's God saved us. How did He do this? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Have you been renewed by the Holy Spirit? Been washed your sin been washed away? Is it under the blood of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Christ for the cleansing of your sin and your guilt? Has the penalty been paid for? Remember, the wages of sin is death. Has, has that penalty been paid? If Jesus came, and he lived the perfect life in your place, and died as that perfect sacrifice, and he was buried, he rose again, and he's ascended to heaven and he is our great high priest for all who put their faith in him. But my friends, our only hope is the marvelous grace of God. So I ask you, what are you trusting in to escape God's judgment? What are you trusting in? Judgment day is coming. Are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we, th- we thank you again for this passage of scripture we're thankful for your spirit who teaches us all truth we ask that he would teach us and guide us into the truth here to understand what this is all about may we see your great drama unfolding before us this 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 drama of redemption may we see the battle that's going on and how satan is has for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years now been trying to stop the seed of the woman from coming. We praise you that he didn't accomplish that purpose. He failed, and his head was crushed. But may we recognize our enemy, that he is, he is still alive, and he does not like us. He hates us. He wants to destroy us and devour us. And would nothing more like to take us into the lake of fire with him. May we understand that there is hope because of your grace. You are a God who uh, just gives, gives us this grace. It's, it's unmerited. We haven't earned it. There's nothing we can to do to earn it. Thank you for sending your son. So as we see your judgment fall, may we look for your grace here. So, would you cause us to be doers of the word? May we understand the relevance of this passage and why judgment has to fall. May we see you as a holy God who cannot overlook sin, but yet you deal with sin. You've provided the way, just as you did for Noah and his family, and you save people because you're a saving, gracious God. We, We praise you for that. 
May we know you. May that truth set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.